And uh, I'm going to read from um, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, and we're going to pray. And we're also going to pray for uh, Judy Jackson. I just got a text while I was praying. I should read those texts when they come in while, while I'm praying, but I didn't. And she's on the way to the hospital even now. So let's be praying for Judy as uh, continues to be a challenge. So uh, let's first of all turn our attention to the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word and, and uh, its truthfulness. Our hearts are, are concerned for our beloved uh, friend Judy and our sister, and we pray that you'll care for her. We pray that the ambulance will be there soon and will take care of her and that you will heal her body. We know that uh, it's just difficult for her with the infections upon her lungs that she faces so often. But Father, we're just so thankful for this woman who is a constant message to us of your faithfulness. Help us to uh, continue to pray for her and to help her to know the richness of your love. Fathers, we look to your word now. We thank you that you are a God and you are not silent and that you do speak to us in your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to understand your word and that you would transform our lives. We pray for our children and children's worship, O God. Grant that they may be taught of you and that they may learn who you are and that they may trust you from a very early age. For it is you, O God, who placed them into our homes. It is you, O God, who placed us into the covenant blessings of Abraham. And you're the one who promised that you would be our God and the God of our descendants after us. We pray that you would be faithful to that promise and that you would bring these children to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And that you will do all of this for the sake of our Savior. Amen. Um, You may not know this about me, but I began playing piano about 15 to 16 years ago. It's true. Um, Patrick was uh, taking lessons and uh, the gal who was teaching him was trying to build a studio and so she took her best students and she began teaching them also pedagogy so they would learn how to give piano lessons and I thought I've kind of always wanted to play a musical instrument I said Patrick will you teach me so I hired him and and so I began playing piano 15 to 16 years ago there were a couple problems that we ran into So after two lessons, I quit. (laughs) Okay, well, that's not quite true. Patrick fired me after two lessons. (laughs) The the other one was I I never really practiced. And so my progress on piano, I wouldn't even say there was ever even a sharp upturn. I just just didn't get very far. But, But I do like to say that I started playing piano 15 to 16 years ago. It's about the time I quit. But that's, that's when I started. No, no progress on the piano at all. Um, we're going to be talking about progress today, so that uh, image may come back to mind in a little bit. Uh, now I want to turn our attention to just the concept of the Christian life and to think about 
what is, what is the Christian life about? What is this Christian life? You hear some people kind of describe it, that the Christian life is, is, is a, a good person who goes to a meeting every week with a bunch of other good people who listen to a really nice person tell them all to be good. Right? And that's kind of, we can see, yeah, in some senses, that's, that's kind of what the Christian life looks like, and, and we can think of it in those terms. But I think every one of us recognizes it's more than that, right? I think the Christian life comes down to, to one idea, one concept, and that is faith. I think the Christian life is all about faith. Um, I think about a, a little friend of ours one time, and she, was, she was maybe four, and she looked at one of our friends and said, what are you about? And she looked at her, I, I, I don't know. She says, I'm about bugs. Okay, now she knew what she was talking about. But that little girl, she was all about bugs. Well, the Christian life, I think, is all about faith. When you stop and really break it down, that's, that's really what matters. Because God says that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That makes it pretty important, doesn't it? The Christian life is all about faith. We are walking through this life and we are learning each day to trust God more. Right? That's really what God is doing in our life. Whether it's going through hardship, and, and think about when you go through hardship, isn't that what you need at that time? Is as you're going through these difficulties, maybe it's, it's the loss of a loved one, maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's the loss of a job, whatever it may be, as you're facing this, you're going through these hard times, you really need to be able to trust God more in that moment, right? The same is true when you're going through good times because it's really easy when everything's going good to forget about God and to think that you're getting all the good because you've done it all right, right? And begin to trust in yourself and think that you're the one reason why everything is good in your life. I'm going through the book of Proverbs this last month. Probably will be in August as well just to go back through it. <clears throat> and I came upon uh, just, I think it was uh, yesterday, day before yesterday, uh, the, the passage where Agur says that... Uh, um, he asks God for two things, and, and one of them is, he says, don't give me riches or poverty. He doesn't want to have poverty because if he's too poor and he steals bread and denies God, but he also doesn't be wealthy and forget about God. And he recognizes that both are opportunities for him to believe. And so what God is doing in our lives is building faith. But I think each of us can probably also remember a time in which we've, we've seen a sad event. And that is we... We see someone come to faith in Jesus Christ and they profess faith. They've heard the gospel. They've come to see that they are sinners and that they're, they're guilty before God. And so they pray that God would forgive them. And they begin to, to act upon it. And they begin to, to read their Bible. And they begin to learn some of the Bible. They begin to pray. And they begin to have this relationship. begin to come to church. And they, they, they do that for a time. And then it kind of dies out and stops, right? To where it was, it was, it was a good amount of growth. And then it kind of kind of levels out. It kind of is a little bit like my uh, short-lived piano career, to where there's a little bit of progress, but not much. And then it just kind of stays at that spot, but then begins to, to, to diminish. Well, I think that's a danger that we all face. And I think the author of Hebrews recognized that there was a danger of that to the Hebrews that he was writing to. He was writing to them, recognizing, okay, you were, you were Jewish believers and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, but now you've got all this pressure on you to just kind of, that's good enough, don't go farther. And to just kind of rest on your laurels. And so he's inviting them to progress in their faith. And that becomes an invitation to us to progress in our faith. 
to keep moving forward. I want to talk for just a moment just about the, the structure of, of this passage. Um, the, the book of Hebrews has some of the most complicated and advanced Greek of any in the New Testament. It's very, very different. And, and uh, you know, having studied Greek a lot more than I studied piano, um, and a number of years ago I was translating the, the book of uh, First Peter, and I was taken aback by, by just how he didn't use proper Greek. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, he's a fisherman. So he wrote like a fisherman, and he would have different, different grammatical structure than Paul would ever use. And here, the author of the Hebrews uses a different, different argumentation style than I've seen anywhere else in the New Testament. Very, very different than anything Paul would do. And I just want you to understand how it, it comes about so we can see why the, the message is structured the way that it is today. See, in verses 12, 13, and 14, he lays out and he instructs us about how to progress in faith. He begins to talk to us just about the fact that we've got to look inside. He begins to show that we're doing it together by encouraging one another. And in verse 14, he talks about us being partakers of Christ and how we need to draw upon Christ. And here's three steps in, in advancing in faith. And then he moves into something else. He begins to turn our attention to what he talked about in the earlier passage by saying, verse 15, while it is said, today if you hard, hear his voice, you're not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And he reminds us of that historical moment in which that passage is talking about. And that was the time in which the children were wandering through uh, uh, on their way out of Egypt heading to uh, Israel and they were in the wilderness and they were grumbling because there was no water. That's when they were grumbling against him and he says, don't harden your heart like they did in that day. So he reminds them of that and then he says, now look at this. Think about this situation. Look at this event in the life of our forebears and what took place. And in verse 16, he asks the question, who provoked him when they had heard? Who was it that was complaining that there was no water? And he answers that. Did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? He starts out and he says, okay, now remember that the people that this verse is written about, about hardening their hearts, is written about those who were redeemed from Egypt, right? This is the people who had been rescued from slavery. Now some of them had been rescued to eternal salvation, but some of them were not, right? Some of them believed and some of them didn't. Some of them who fell in the desert believed, like Moses, but others did not. But he says, first of all, recognize that all of these people were believers, Jewish believers, well, Israelite believers, kind of like you folks, right? He wants them to see that. But then he moves it a step farther. He says, first of all, everybody who was complaining are those who had been redeemed from, from Egypt. Then he asks, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Okay, so who was he angry with for this complaining? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness, which was that generation, right? And he was angry with them, and their bodies fell in, in the wilderness. And then he asked another question. And first off, those people fell because they sinned. Next question. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, right? So then he says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. He doesn't say because of sin. He doesn't say because of disobedience. He lays out for us that the disobedience and the sin had a root which was unbelief. And so what he's showing us here in this, in this uh, illustration, this application of that one passage, is how unbelief is our real danger. That's what brings the hardened heart. 
That's what brings disobedience. That's what brings sin in our lives. It's that unbelief. And so we turn our attention back to verses 12, 13, and 14 as his instructions of how we prevent that. How do we progress in faith? How do we keep growing in faith? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the first way that we are able to grow in faith, to progress in faith, is to learn to look inside. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You see where he starts out. He starts out with with pointing them inside. Look in your heart. Be sure as every one of you looks into your own heart. I can't look into your heart. I can't see what's in your heart. You can't see what's in my heart. So when he says, make sure that there's not in you an evil, unbelieving heart, he's talking about looking inside ourselves. Examining ourselves. Start here. I think there are two concepts that are really important in the Christian life for us to grow. It's introspection and circumspection. Introspection and circumspection. An honest appraisal of ourself and our environment are essential to growth. Introspection is that looking honestly, what's going on in here? Circumspection is looking honestly at my environment, the people, um, the, the events, the, uh, everything around me, the, what's going on. And by honestly appraising these is how I begin to move forward in growth. And I think the first is an inward look. I've got to start inside. And to do that, I've got to be honest. I've got to be honest. Um, last Saturday and then two weeks before that, I was doing uh, refuge training. And I think we did uh, 12, 13 hours together of, of looking at the issue of domestic abuse and trying to build uh, mentors to work with our refuge uh, ministry. And one of the tasks of the mentors is to do something that we call intake. And that is to say an individual uh, comes to one of our mentors with their situation and the mentor asks them to tell their story. And the mentor is looking for patterns of abuse within this person's life to see, is this person who's just in a bad marriage? Is it someone who just doesn't like their spouse? Is it someone who, uh, uh, whatever the case may be, or is it someone who's in an abusive relationship? And so a lot of our training is helping our, our mentors to really be able to understand what abuse is, that they might be able to identify it. Because there's no sign that kind of pops up you know, like the, the turkey on Thanksgiving pops up and says, okay, now it's ready, right? That doesn't happen. It doesn't say, oh, now it's abuse, especially when it comes to psychological abuse. Now, many women who are abused psychologically would say, I wish he'd hit me because then people would believe me. And so how do you understand that? Well, you've got to be really honest. If you go into it to where you're, you're, you're finding abuse under every rock, then everybody's abused and, and, and it's not really helpful. It's actually harmful to the women who are being abused because we're not seeing the reality and people will focus on, well, there are false diagnoses. Well, yeah, so we want to keep that to a minimum. But you've got to be honest about it. What is really happening? Well, we've got to do that inside us. And to do that, we've, we've got to be willing to look for unbelief in us. Look at, he says, verse 12, make sure that there is not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, unbelieving heart is... Is uh, unbelieving is actually an adjective. It's not a participle in that case. It's it's a it's a heart where at that time it's not believing. It's it's actually uses the alpha privative, the, the little what we put an a in front of something like atheist, right? And someone who doesn't believe in God, and it'd be it'd be uh, apistos, that is uh, no faith, not having faith. And there are those times in our life when we don't have faith, 
And we're supposed to look for that. And we've got to understand that unbelief is possible in our lives. Well, that's hard to swallow, isn't it? I mean, we just sang the song, right? So it makes it true. I am a Christian, right? Okay, so I am. So how could there be unbelief in my heart? It can't happen. I mean, that's just not the case, right? And yet, we see something about our hearts when we look a little bit closer. Um, and one of the things that we see is we are dynamic beings. And by that I mean we change. We change. We're not the same all the time. God is, but we're not. So that one day, I can have the faith of, of a Shadrach, right? And I can, I can have that strong a faith to where the king comes to me and says, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And I stand up and I say, you can throw me in the fiery furnace all you want. I'm not going to deny my God, right? And you've had those moments where you've had this magnificent faith. And you stand firm. And the next moment, you've got the faith of Peter. The little slave girl says, aren't you a Galilean? He says, I don't even know Jesus. And you deny the Lord. Peter, the rock, had that moment. If Peter can have those moments from thou art the Christ to I do not know him, how much more you and I can face that? I need to recognize that my heart is something that changes. And so I need to be able to look at those moments when there is unbelief in my heart. I need to look, and I've got to be careful, because Jeremiah 17.9 tells me something about my heart that I need to be aware of, and the heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And for this, I want to offer a little pastoral advice, if you will, on a practical way that I can begin to deal with that. As you begin to do self-examination, you begin to look inside. Our hearts have this amazing way of changing the subject. When we start to get close to an area where we're having unbelief, our heart will immediately start to think about our golf game. As I begin to get close to that spot where I'm, where I'm not walking in obedience to Christ, I'm suddenly aware of everybody else's failures around me. As I begin to look inside my heart and I start to get close to that place where I'm not believing, I can suddenly be very much aware of the great success that I've accomplished for Jesus and I'm looking for that gold medal He's going to give me one day. All of these are ways that our heart takes us away so we can't see the unbelief that is there. Be aware of that. Recognize that. And then think about verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So we've got to ask God to take us through that self-examination. We need to God. We need to pray Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It must become that prayer. So it is God who takes us inside. It's God who walks with us. It's God who tames our heart that we might be able to see the unbelief that is there. I just want to give a, a rather lengthy illustration of what this unbelief inside a Christian can look like. This is from a 
small book, The Secrets of the Vine. I think the women's Bible study went through this a couple years back, uh, written by Bruce Wilkinson. Bruce Wilkinson is the founder of uh, Through the Bible Ministries. Uh, Through the Bible Ministries is a, a ministry in which uh, they come into a church and they'll do a weekend in which they do a Bible survey. And by the end of the weekend, you've got an idea of how all the Bible fits together and what each of the books of the Bible is about. And it's just a really cool uh, uh, ministry. And one of the things you learn is all the books of the Bible in order, which, by the way, uh, one of our students at VBS this year memorized all 66 verse, books of the Bible and was able to recite them. It was really cool. Um, and he really knew it because he slowed down. So he was able to say it slowly. So we knew that he really needed it. But Bruce Wilkinson writes this autobiographical uh, sketch of, of his own finding unbelief in his heart. He says, I was driving to work one bright Georgia morning when a black Corvette pulled alongside me, top down, paint gleaming. The driver looked cool and confident in his designer sunglasses. Seconds later, the sports car roared past and disappeared over a rise. That's when I noticed it. Something was missing. Sure, I still had my wallet and the clothes on my back. I still had my job complete with a long to-do list. I still had a wife and kids at home. But my heart was gone. It had been stolen, was now speeding away with that Corvette. Amen, <laughs> gentlemen? I know for me it was a Maserati, but nonetheless, we, we, we know the experience. By the time I walked into my office, I was in full-blown crisis. Already contemplating resigning, maybe taking a job at a parking lot, the ministry that just yesterday had seemed so important today tasted like sawdust. I went home that night and talked things through with Darlene. We decided that the problem might be burnout. For months I'd been working harder and longer, but I seemed to have less to show for it. By bedtime, we had come to the disturbing conclusion that the passion I used to feel about serving God had been in decline for some time. The black Corvette actually had little to do with my dilemma. All it had done was steal the illusion that everything was fine. Instead of resigning, I started to pray. Good choice. For days, I pleaded with God to show me what to do. He seemed to nudge me toward calling a man I'd met more than ten years earlier. George is a respected leadership mentor and scholar on the West Coast. When I got to on the phone, I struggled to put my problem into words. Bruce, are you having money troubles? George asked. I said no. Something to do with sex? No, nothing like that. By the time I hung up, he had invited me to fly out to California to see him. A few days later, George and I were settling into two big red leather ch chairs. Outside the window, eucalyptus trees swayed in the breeze. Tell me your whole life story, he said, and don't hurry. I talked for at least an hour. When my account came to two years before the present, George stopped me. Let me finish your life story, he said. But how can you, I asked. You don't even know what has happened. Oh, but I know why you're here, he said. He got up to pour me a fresh cup of coffee and then continued. I've studied over 500 Christian leaders' lives, biblical examples, historical figures, and contemporary people, some of whom you know. And Bruce, you're right on schedule. On schedule? For what? I asked. George definitely had my attention. Standing in front of me, he held up his hands, palms facing me. These are your two sources of fulfillment. My right hand stands for your relationship with God, my left for your competence in ministry, he said. When you first began to serve the Lord, your relationship was young and vibrant. It had to be because your competence was weak. He moved his right hand up so that, his, so that it was higher than his left. He continued, but over time, your competence increased. He moved both hands side by side, position. At this stage, the fulfillment you experienced from your competence was approximately equal to the fulfillment you experienced from your relationship with the Lord. 
George's left hand drifted upward, above his right. Pretty soon, your competence became apparent to all. You had never been more productive for God, but your walk with him began to suffer. Your satisfaction dropped, he paused. Bruce, this is where you are now. I read that whole thing because retelling it can't give you the, the vision that he gives by his own words and the reality and the truthfulness that he is expressing is something that many of us have experienced at different times. We start out and, and all we got is Jesus because we're no good at anything. And then as God gives us ability, we begin to rely more on that and we find satisfaction in the fact that people notice that we're good at stuff and we rely less on that relationship with Jesus. Our faith begins to wane. And again, if this can happen in someone like a Bruce Wilkinson, can't it happen in you and I? We need to be aware of that. Our faith waxes and wanes. We need to recognize it and do something about it. We need to deal with the unbelief. And to deal with the unbelief, let me first of all say, don't be afraid. But I'm a Christian. And that means I'm a believer if I don't believe, have I stopped being a believer? Right? It's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying What if people found out me as a pastor didn't believe? How horrible would that be? You don't think it's all just made up, right? And the terror of that can strike us. But let me ask a couple questions. Is unbelief a sin? Really? We're uncertain? <laughs> a simple, yes, <laughs> absolutely, it's a sin, right? Okay, what did Jesus die for? For my sin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had a lot for that, right? <laughs> he, he, he died for, how, how much of my sin? I mean, isn't it great he died for most of our sin? All? All meaning what? All, 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 all? all? Like all, including my unbelief? then I don't need to be afraid of taking it to him, do I? Because he already knows about it because he already died for it. I'm okay because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have never trusted in that gospel, now is the time because he will indeed pay for your sin as well. So because of the gospel, I don't have to be afraid, but I can instead look and I can find the unbelief. And as I find the unbelief, one of the things I learned about the unbelief is it leads away from God. It says an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's where unbelief takes me away from God. So how am I going to deal with my unbelief if it's going to lead me away from God? What's the first thing I ought to do? I want to go to the living God, right? Isn't that where I want to find myself? I want to draw near to Him. And in drawing near to Him, I begin to deal with that uh, unbelief. Why? Because without faith it's impossible to please God for the one who comes to Him must believe that he exists and he's a reward of those who seek him. That's why I then turn my attention and I come to him. Let me just suggest to you one of the ways to, to draw close to him is remember how much he loves you. He just adores you. I remember uh, one, one young lady I, uh, was uh, part of my youth group and, and was going through some difficult time and we just needed to find some way to, for her to think of this. And uh, we came up, we decided to use really bad Spanish uh, as close as we could get, and we said, Jesus esta loco para ti. Jesus is crazy for you, is what we tried to come up with, just so that she would be able to, to let her mind rest on that truth. We all need that, don't we? To close my eyes in prayer and know Jesus is crazy about me. 
He loves me so much and so I can come to Him and I can realize that and I can know that He will help. And as you do that, begin to take out a piece of paper and begin to make a list. Make a list of what you know about God. Whatever it is. First off, He loves me. Second off, I know that, that He's sovereign. Third, I know that He's faithful. I know that He's good. Whatever your list would be, begin to make that list. And on the right-hand side of the paper, next to each of those truths about God, write down, so what? How does this affect your life? Practically today, that God loves me. One of the ways is I'm going to seek His face with a smile on mine because it's a wonderful place to be. And begin to make that list. This is going to help you draw close to Him and begin to drive out the unbelief in your life. First, look inside. This is how we progress in faith. We start out looking inside. And the second is we walk together. Look at verse 18. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You notice the the image of, of verse 12 was all inside. I have to search my own heart. Now this one is in community. Verse 13 is we're going together. Encourage one another. This is, this is a relational. It isn't that, that I need other Christians in order to be saved. I only need God. But God works through other Christians. And it's God who's working. So it isn't the other Christians' encouragement that is the power in my life. It's God that is the power in my life. But He uses those Christians to get that power into my life. Do you understand? What I'm trying to get us to see about that. He says encourage which is the Greek word parakaleo, which is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. And there are a couple different things that he shows us that, that, that encouragement does in our life. The first is that it promotes a soft heart. For he says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened. Encouragement prevents hardening of the heart, right? So encouragement is going to promote that soft heart. We see that in places like Philippians chapter 2 and the first four verses. Therefore, if there is any encouragement, that's our parakaleo word in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. What is the effect of this encouragement going to have in my life? I'm going to be able to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard others more important than myself. I'm going to be able to not merely look out for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's going to soften my heart. It's going to promote that, this encouragement in my life. The second thing it will do is it protects me from deceit because he says, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's encouragement that will help me from having, being deceived by sin. Uh, the same word uh, encouragement is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging, parakaleo, and imploring each of you, each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As a father. Think about the role of a father in the life of a child. A child is walking through life. And a child is hearing everybody tell them what the right way to go is, Right? All their friends are telling them one thing. Other people are telling them things. Uh, uh, the, the advertisers are telling them something else. Their heart is telling them another thing. What is the father doing? The father stands in their life as an individual that they trust who has walked with them their whole life and says, son or daughter, this is the right way to go. And guides them and directs them in the path that they ought to go. Read the book of Proverbs 
and how frequently it talks about that's the role of the Father to be able to say, this is the right way to go. You're hearing lots of voices, but my beloved child, listen, this is what is right. And that's what encouragement can do to us as we hear all of the different voices, as we hear the temptations and the deceitfulness of sin. Encouragement comes alongside and says, no, it's this way. This is where we ought to go. And we need that encouragement in our lives. And to, to work, encouragement should be reciprocal. Reciprocal. Um, one tool that I'd love to have one day is a reciprocating saw. Every man who has one says, Amen. I, I remember an individual saying he loved uh, his reciprocal saw, his reciprocating saw, because he used it every time he was able to kill a deer during deer season. He says, so much easier than a knife. And so that was just what he really loved it for. I think it's great. Think about a reciprocating saw. What does it do? It's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Just like encouragement. Back and forth, back and forth. That's what the word how to, one another, means in the Greek. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That it's constantly coming together. The word itself, parakaleo, means to call alongside. And I want to think about this in two different ways and apply it in two different ways in, in our, our, our thinking. The first way is to call alongside is when we need care. Have you faced that? Something happens. Maybe there's some bad news. And you've got to call someone. Sorry, for the young people. You've got to call someone. I asked my granddaughters, I said, how would, you, how would you show me a sign that you're talking on the phone? And we would always do this, and they would go, like this. I thought, well, all right then. <laughs> we have different phones today. Who would you call? Right? And you would call them because you need that comfort. You need someone to care for you. To call them alongside. And when you call them alongside, you accept their comfort and their guidance, don't you? If you've ever been with someone who's lost a loved one, um, it's amazing how receptive they are to a hug, right? Even someone who's not normally a hugger, when they've lost someone and they're in that moment of the sadness and the grief, they want the hug and they receive that hug and they accept that comfort. They also accept guidance, particularly in times of grief when, when we're dealing with grief. Someone will come up and, and almost everybody will have some word of, of, of encouragement, but of direction and guidance, right? I don't know how many times uh, we, we, we see that. I remember as a, a child, uh, my, my stepfather had taken his life, and uh, my two stepsisters and my two brothers and I were all in, in one house, and we had two dogs. And what my mom found was every night, all of us were in her bed, right? It's just where we all felt like we needed to be. And my stepfather's brother came, and he gave my mom counsel. And he said, get them out of your bedroom. You need this time alone. Now, my mom's a pretty strong woman. But in her grief, she listened to that guidance. And it meant something to her. Because we're receptive to guidance. We're in those hard times, right? And so when you're calling someone alongside, accept their comfort and accept their guidance. That's the encouragement. But it goes the other way. What if you're the one they called? 
what do you do? What do you do if you're the one that is called? Well, I think it's very similar. I think, first of all, is you show them acceptance. You show them that you love them. Isn't that a part of why you hug them? Saying, I don't care that you've been crying and your makeup is all over your face and, and, and it's just kind of gross. doesn't matter. I'm here, I love you, and I want you to know that. And I accept you. I accept you at this moment when all of your guard is down and you have nothing to protect yourself. It's okay, you're safe. And that's a great ministry that we can give to someone in that moment. And the second is, we can help them trust Jesus. When Robin's mom died and the words of Randy Steele said to her, all I know is God is good. Cling to that truth, Robin. Cling to that truth. And that's what we can help one another. This is the reciprocating aspect of encouragement. But encouragement should also be consistent as we look at this verse. Verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, day after day, day after day, day after day. I like to use the term, yes, we'll do that as on every day that ends in Y. Right? That works. And that includes today. But not tomorrow. Because I need to do it now. Not later. As long as it's still called today. I need to be offering encouragement. I need to be receiving encouragement. Sometimes we think we got this. I don't need to be asking people. Well, that's all fine if we want to live in disobedience to the Word of God. Go ahead. (laughs) It seems kind of counterproductive to the idea, right? But instead, to be able to say, who can I ask to help and who can I help? We need to have relationships that are close enough that we can call. That when the time of need arises, they say, hey, can you be there for me? That's the type of encouragement that we need We need to look inside and then we need to walk together. And finally, the third step is we've got to draw upon Christ. Look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Partakers of Christ. Two words, meta, which means alongside, and echo, which means to hold. Or meta, which means with, I'm sorry, with. With and to hold, to, to hold with someone, to hold it together, that we're being held with Jesus, that we're connected with Him, that we're drawing upon Him, we're partakers of Christ. This word is used seven times in the New Testament, and five of those are in the book of Hebrews. Two of them are in this chapter. The other two times it's used, it's, it means partner or partnership. To be partners with Christ. What does Jesus provide for you? No, really, I want you to think about that. What does Jesus provide for you? Reminds me of the title of a book uh, by Philip Yancey. It's, what, what good is God? But to ask yourself, what does Jesus provide for you? John chapter 6, verse 53 gives us a little bit of a picture of that. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. That sounds a lot like partaking of Christ, doesn't it? 
unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He's saying that partaking in Christ gets life inside ourselves. That He becomes the very life force. Have you ever thought about what is it that makes you alive? That's Jesus. And then what makes you spiritually alive? What makes you aware of the Spirit? What makes you interested in God? It is that life force that God places inside us. But it's more than a life force. It's also strength. It's the ability of life. And by ability, I mean the, the, the capability, the actual, that there is a potential for me to act. There is a potential for me to believe. And that strength, which, which then I can, can act upon that potential and believe, is God in me. And I receive that in partaking of Christ. It's the first aspect of, of what He does for me, what He provides for me. The second I'm going to look for, second and third I want to look at in Ephesians. Uh, because Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, um, in, in those two chapters you hear the phrase, in Him or in Christ, is written in the New American Standard 23 times in two chapters. That gets you an idea, Paul wanted to get something across to us, right? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to partake of Christ? The first is in chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He starts out in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He provides for you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Name a spiritual blessing. Faith. It's provided for you in Christ. Name a spiritual blessing. Grace. It's provided for you in Christ. Peace. It's provided for you in Christ. Patience. It's provided for you in Christ. Every conceivable spiritual blessing, your spiritual gifts, awareness of His love, friends, kindness, all of it has been provided for us in Christ. Verse six, verse, uh, sorry, verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He chose you to be holy. You weren't chosen to be worldly. You were chosen to be holy by God before the found, before He created this earth. He chose you by name to be holy. That's a blessing. It's something that He's provided for you. In verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. He predestined you to be adopted, to be accepted, to belong to God. These are blessings. This is what God provides for you. Is this nice? Chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. It says, uh, double check my notes. Yes, that is where I'm going. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. We are spiritually alive in Christ. Partaking of Christ means that we are alive. Look at verse 6. And He raised us up with Him. Not just alive, but exalted, resurrected. It isn't that we just have a moment of life, but we're resurrected and now we've been lifted up to Christ, lifted up so much that we're seated with Him as well in the heavenly places. He has exalted you above all. 
because of his love for you. This is what it is to partake of Christ. This is what he's provided for you. And verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're recipients of his kindness. Oh, that we would only have eyes to see his kindness. One of the more striking memories of seeing God's kindness occurred while we were here. Um, some of you might remember, we'd been here about two weeks and we prayed for my friend Mel Pike, who was a missionary in Ukraine. On January 1st, 2013, uh, Mel's wife fell down and uh, severed an artery in her leg and died in Ukraine. And uh, Mel came to be with us a, a, a few weeks after that and spent some time with us, and he was just grieving at the loss of, of his beloved. And Mel and I went to seminary together, and so we spent a lot of time with he and Cindy, and, and uh, we were working through this. And he, he was just rehearsing what the last year had been for them. And we had known, because we'd prayed with them all year as we received their updates. And, and 2012 was just a, a discouraging year for them. They'd never had problems with their visa in Ukraine, ever before. And in 2012, they had visa problems and had to leave Ukraine. And they couldn't just stay in Europe, so they came back to the States. And so they were in the States for most of 2012. And they were frustrated by it. And then as we look back on it, and we realize that in the last year of Cindy's life, God frustrated their will so that she would spend the last year of her life with her children and her grandchildren because of the kindness of God. He's so gentle, isn't he? He didn't have to give them that kindness, but he did. What a wonderful memory for her family to be able to say, God gave us mom for the last year of her life. Isn't that wonderful? But you see, that kind of kindness is ours in Christ. It's what he provides for us as partakers of Christ. I want you to hear me on this. It's all true. And it's all real. It's true for you. It's real in your life. Believe it. Believe it. I use the definition of faith is to live consistent with perceived truth. To live consistent with perceived truth. Because faith is not thinking truth. Faith is living it. Francis Schaeffer uh, describes it this way. This is a, a summation of what he's written in uh, He is There and He is Not Silent. And uh, he says, Suppose we're climbing in the Alps and are very high on the bare rock and suddenly the fog shuts down. The guide turns to us and says that the ice is forming and there is no hope. Before morning, we will all freeze to death here on the shoulder of the mountain. Simply to keep warm, the guide keeps us moving in the dense fog further out on the shoulder until none of us have any idea where we are. Suppose we heard a voice which said, You cannot see me, but I know exactly where you are from your voices. I am on another ridge. I have lived in these mountains, man and boy, for over 60 years, and I know every foot of them. 
I assure you that ten feet below you there is a ledge. If you hang and drop, you can make it through the night and I will get you in the morning. I would not hang and drop at once, but would ask questions to try to ascertain if the man knew what he was talking about and if he was not my enemy. In the Alps, for example, I would ask him his name. If the name he gave me was the name of a family from that part of the mountains, it would count a great deal to me. In my desperate situation, even though time would be running out, I would ask him what to me would be the sufficient questions. And when I became convinced by his answers, then I would hang and drop. That is faith. And I say amen. That is precisely faith on every level. He has nailed it. Faith isn't knowing the ledges below you. Faith isn't asking the man the questions. Faith is action based on an understanding of truth. And that's what we're calling, he's calling us to do, to believe. To believe that we have become partakers of Christ. If I am to draw upon Christ, I can only do that by believing, which means I want to commune with Him. If I'm going to draw upon Him, I've got to spend time with Him. I've got to do that daily. Not to go through my quiet time, but to be alone with my God and to draw upon His strength. I've got to do that weekly on the Lord's Day as I gather together for worship. Why are we gathered here? I was talking with a guy just this last week, and and he was explaining to me um, just how uh, unnecessary church is and uh, how the forest is just as valuable. And uh, he talked a lot. I didn't have an opportunity to talk much. But the realization that, no, I think God seems to indicate that this is pretty important too, that we need to be here in this place. And it isn't about going through the worship service. It's not about, well, I'll endure the song so I can get to the preaching because that's where the heart of it is or the other way around, depending on which way you lean. It's about the whole. Even that part that I find less stimulating is I'm meeting with God. I'm communing with Him. That's why I'm here. It's not necessarily to get anything out of it. It's to commune with my God. And then I need to walk in obedience. Because if we see anything from 17 through 19, it's that unbelief breeds disobedience. Therefore, belief shows itself in obedience. Faith occurs in our will. My friends, you are a partaker of Christ. Draw upon Him. I already told you how I made no progress on piano. Uh, but there's another experience in my life. Uh, it was about a year ago that I went to visit my cardiologist, which as I was waiting for him, I was just sitting there thinking about the fact that I could say, I have a cardiologist, and how troubling that was in my life, and, and that realization. And he came in and talked to me. He says, okay, well, you need to exercise. See ya. And he starts to leave. And I said, whoa, stop, hold it. What does that even mean, Exercise. I need more specifics. This is not helpful. 
And so he begins to describe to me that I need to do a certain amount of cardio exercise uh, to get my pulse. And he told me what I need to get my pulse rate up to and, and how long I needed to keep it there. And he said, and then I need to do some resistance training and, and here's what I need to do. And I said, now that is helpful. That's good stuff. And so I came home and immediately went out and I joined a gym. And I started going to the gym five days a week. I don't look like it, but it's true. I do go to the gym five days a week. My hope was go to the gym five days a week for a year. I'd look a little bit more like Chris Hemsworth instead of Danny DeVito, but I'll settle for what God gave me. So here, here we are. But uh, the, the, the idea, what happened? I remember my first day at the gym. I did not curse my cardiologist, but the thought did cross my mind. As I'm on the treadmill, trying to walk on a treadmill for 20 minutes, and I'm sweating, and I'm sore, and I'm working hard, and it was just, it was a lot of work for 20 minutes. Now, going to the gym mostly five days a week for a year, I can now run a 5K on a treadmill in about 34 minutes. And I, it's not great, but I'm happy with that, because you know what that is? That's progress. So I think in about 70 years, I might be able to reach that Chris Hemsworth thing. But, uh, because in 70 years, we'll probably both be in the same spot. But anyway, um, that, that realization that there is progress. And that's what we need in our faith. And I pray that God will help me and help us to progress in our faith. To do that, we're going to have to look inside. We're also going to have to encourage one another. And above all, we must each be drawing upon Jesus. If we do that, we can progress. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for your faithfulness. I thank you for this congregation, O oh God. I know the times that I have served at other churches and the times in which my heart has been broken as I've seen individuals who have stopped in their faith and have quit growing, quit progressing. I thank you that I see a growing faith in this congregation, and, oh God, I pray that you would keep it going. I pray for every one of us, oh God, that you would help us to progress in our faith, that there would not be inside any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart, but that we would encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, knowing that we are partakers of Christ. Father, grant that our faith may grow so that you may receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.